0: Our text this morning is Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Luke nine twenty three through 26. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Uh, Father, I ask that You help us understand Christ's words at the most fundamental, most important question of our life. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Who can follow Jesus? God, I pray that we don't miss this basic and yet offensive to the world truth about the Gospel. Father, I pray that we would love this Gospel, that we wouldn't be ashamed of it, but that we would see that our life comes from it. God, I pray that uh, You would make Jesus' words clear to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if... uh, You've been keeping track in the news the last couple of days on the forest fires that uh, have been uh, raging in California. Uh, it hit kind of close to home. One of my brother's uh, best friends and a fellow uh, uh, pastor, a good friend of mine and our families and other people in the church here, um, lived in paradise, uh, California, uh, this town, uh, that was kind of off the beaten path that in a moment in one day was, uh, just gone. And, uh, the morning, uh, after, uh, Kyle is my brother's friend's name, uh, He got done with his morning workout. Uh, He heard about wildfires. And before other people in the town had yet realized what was uh, coming, uh, he had discernment to get his family out soon. And as he did, he went to his elderly neighbor's home right next door and pleaded with them to uh, leave their home and to not stay and try to protect their home, but to go because he sensed that this could uh, be really dangerous. This is a town filled with uh, pine trees everywhere. Uh, They refused his plea uh, to leave, and they got out uh, by the skin of their teeth. Uh, Many others did not. He still does not know. Uh, whether or not his neighbors are alive. But I saw a picture of a before and after of his house and his where his house used to be. There's nothing left. Every ounce of his possession, him and his family's possession, uh, gone in a moment. And some who stayed may be seeking to save their life lost it in that uh, fire that really has been unlike any other that just totally took uh, down the church where he worked. Uh, they, they're thinking they might not even ever rebuild the town. What would it be like? Your church is gone, your job is gone, your house is gone. All your neighbors' homes are gone in a moment. I couldn't believe as I was studying the text this week how good of illustration we have before us. See, Jesus says, not everyone can follow me. There is an invitation to everyone, but only those who count the cost are really able to follow Christ. And in order... For us to answer uh, Christ's call to follow him, we need to understand what he means by it. I wonder if you've ever really understood the gospel. That's ai don't assume that. Even if you've gone to church your whole life, uh, the form of the gospel in American evangelicalism often is missing a text like this. In fact, this might be Jesus' most uh, preached sermon. Over and over and over again, he would have taught the truths that are in this text uh, because many of his parables illustrate the truths in this text. Every one of the Gospels speaks of these truths, and yet it's almost entirely missing in Gospel preaching today. So I don't assume... uh, I don't stand up here assuming that this is all old hat to you. And maybe it'll be the first time that you understand the offensive nature of the gospel. Paul continually would talk about not being ashamed of the gospel. And some people might think, well, what's there to be ashamed of? We have a message uh, that's called good news. That's what the word gospel means, good news. What's there to be ashamed of? Well, we're going to see in this text that the good news comes after the bad news about who we really are. And only those who know who they are will truly come to him in a saving way. Now, as a way of uh, helping us not get wrong ideas about uh what this text teaches, I think it's important that we understand two doctrines uh, from Scripture that are true as well to help us balance what we're looking at. Um, You see, it's easy when you focus in on one passage and not realize what the rest of Scripture says. Sometimes we can think wrongly about the teaching. One of the Uh, truths I want to remind us of is a doctrine called common grace. So there's grace that saves people from their sins and from hell. And then there's another type of grace called general grace or common grace that's given to non-believers and believers. Uh, Wayne Grudem says this, here's his definition. Common grace is the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. Uh, Here's how Jesus said it in Matthew 5, verse 44 in his Sermon on the Mount. He told his disciples, he says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Common grace is God's goodness to all mankind, even though mankind doesn't deserve it. In fact, this morning, unbelievers all over the world woke up, enjoyed a sunrise maybe, Breakfast, the fellowship of family and friends, and all of that was only by the grace of God, the common grace of God. And yet, without them trusting in Christ specifically, their souls are ultimately, will ultimately be destroyed because there would be no forgiveness for their sins. So one of the things to remember is even unbelievers can do nice things. Things that seem good. You can help an old lady across the street and that's an example of common grace. But what it's not an example of is humanity being good in and of itself by nature. In fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite of that. Any good thing, even a non-believer does, is only by the grace and common grace of God. The Apostle Paul uh, tells us, for I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Not one thing good in and of himself, in, in and of his flesh, in Romans 3.10, as Paul gives the judgment against all humanity, here's what he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. One. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Paul doesn't. Discount the fact that God's using him for good, but he says, that's not I. It's the grace of God working in me. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, as the church is uh, this brand new church that's struggling is having factions in it because some people think their spiritual gifts are better than other people's and there's all this pride and arrogance splitting the church in half. Here's what Paul says. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Anything honorable or good in your life. It's the same for Paul as it is for you and I, is by the grace of God. What do you have that you did not receive? So, to have the distinction between common grace, yes, people do do nice things, but even that is not because they're good in and of themselves apart from the grace of God, but because of the grace of God. The second thing is this. Uh, every human being has value as an image bearer of God. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And how did He do it? He grabbed dust. Now, dust has no honor and no glory to it. But when God grabs it and forms it into a body and then breathes His own breath into it, Human beings have value, not because dust is special, but because of the image of God that he put on every human being so that the biggest rebel against God that shakes his fist against God, hates God, still ought to be treated by us with value as a human life. Someone who has Alzheimer's and no longer knows anybody should be cared for with dignity and respect because the image of God is on them. That does not, however, mean that there's intrinsic value or worth in and of the dust or ourselves. But we have value because it's been gifted us by God. So those two doctrines will help us as we work through this text and ask eight questions. Now, there's only three verses in this text, but I realized as I was asking questions to the text, we really could preach eight sermons on every one of these questions. But we're not going to do that, but we easily could This is rich and this is at the core of what the gospel is and what it means to be a disciple of Christ and follow Christ. So let's look at the text. I want to read the few verses before verse 23, starting in verse 21. We read, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now Peter had just said, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus surprisingly says, don't tell this to anybody. Saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. There's a progression there. The Son of Man's going to suffer, be rejected by religious authorities, be killed, and be raised. From Matthew's gospel we see that Jesus or that Peter pulls him aside and rebukes the son of god he rebukes the messiah he just proclaimed and he says far be it from you to die and Jesus looks at him and says get behind me satan you don't you're not thinking about the things of god but the things of man and so it's after Jesus says this he says to all, if anyone would come after me. Now, he's just said, here's where I'm going, and if you want to be my disciple and come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let's ask the first question. If you look at your notes in your bulletin here, what does it mean to follow Jesus? You see, Jesus didn't go around saying, Let's see how many followers I can get. "Hey, come here, this is awesome. Come follow me." In fact, he turns around and he continually looks, looks back at the crowd and is asking themselves a question, "Do you even know where I'm going? Do you even know the implications for your own life? if anyone would come after me? If anyone would be my disciple? Now in our culture, we don't understand the concept of disciple maybe like they would have in Jesus' day, but if someone was going to be a disciple of a teacher or a rabbi, they would give up everything about their life and give their life to the rabbi to be a learner and follower for the rest of their life of that rabbi. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to be a disciple. It means to give up all your own leadership and freedom and to follow the leader. It means to become a submitter to the teacher. You're giving up ownership of your life to follow the rabbi, the teacher. You remember when Jesus called Peter, James, and John? It said they've just they been fishermen their whole lives. They caught the biggest catch they've ever caught in their entire life. I related that to shooting a 200-class buck for me. What would it take for me to just walk away from this best day ever And follow him. But they did. They dropped their nets. They followed Christ. It means to go where he goes and do what he does. See, you couldn't be a disciple without walking right behind and going the same place your rabbi is going. He just told them where he was going. His life's going to have a progression. Suffer, rejection, death, resurrection. That's, that's where we're going. That's the road map. Just to let you know, if you want to follow me, here's where I'm going. Second, what does it mean to deny yourself? Look at what he says. He says, um, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. It means to not allow your flesh to influence you. Seems weird. How do you deny yourself? How do you get away from yourself? How do you get away from your own passions and your own desires? It means to believe that following yourself in your own heart will lead to destruction, so you deny your sinful, selfish desires. You don't trust yourself. Now, I have four daughters, and especially this time of year when it starts to get cold and new Christmas Hallmark movies come out, we end up watching a lot of them. And it never fails. At the end of these movies, there's this just follow your heart moment. Just trust your heart. And that is exactly opposite of what it means to deny yourself. You know, if you deny something, you don't think you need it. I picture if I was going to illustrate it in like charades, it would kind of be like, Don't need you. It's not going to happen. I don't want to hear it. I don't need you. Get out of my life. And Jesus just said, do that to yourself if you want to follow me. Lose trust in your own heart, in your own goodness, so that you deny yourself. If you deny somebody something, you say, you're not good enough for me. If you deny someone access to your life, it's saying, you're not good enough for me. It means to stiff arm the ones in whom you're disgusted with. In fact, failing to do this is the cause to every one of your relational problems in life. Because you do not stiff arm yourself is the reason why you have all the relational struggles you have. You say, well, that's a pretty strong statement. Well, I say it with authority that way because I didn't come up with the idea. In James 4.1, God's word says this, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Imagine if God answers that question. This is why biblical counseling is so helpful. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire, you do not have, so you murder, you covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The world is all going after their own desires. They're trusting their heart. They believe they're right. And they're trusting. And in this passionate, it's like they're a king and a queen of a kingdom and they're going to make their kingdom go. The problem is, is there's all sorts of other people that get in the way of getting what they want. So there's fights, there's quarrels, there's wars. Every one of your fights, every one of your relational struggles is because people are not denying themselves in fact you're fighting for yourself to get what you want and you desire and you're just like the world and when you're just like the world you're at war with god so what does it mean to deny yourself it means not to trust your heart the heart is deceitfully wicked who can know it the bible says What does it mean to take up your cross daily? Look at what he says. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now the cross is one of the most cruel means of execution. That's all it ever has meant. And unfortunately, it probably means all sorts of different things now. But when Jesus said it, (laughs) that's what it meant. It's the means of execution. How do you kill yourself every day? How do you daily take up your cross and die? Obviously, he's not talking about suicide. In fact, suicide is actually all about uh, it's a desperate attempt to fix your own problem by yourself. You see, it's still putting your hope in and of yourself. So what's he mean when he says take up your cross? Well, point two, to deny yourself means to not trust yourself, to stiff arm yourself. Point three is to go in action, to make war against yourself that you don't trust. It means to violently Attack, oppose any inkling of self confidence in your own flesh or the world. That's what it means to take up your cross. It's to recognize that this is war. You see, when you deny your flesh, your flesh doesn't say, okay, sorry, I'll go away, I won't bother you anymore. You'll wake up every morning and your flesh says, feed me, get what I want. Build my kingdom. And Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you're going to wake up every morning in a war zone fighting against your old self. The selfishness in your own heart. If you put something on the cross, you put it there to die. It means you're willing to lose anything that gets in the way of your gaining Christ. Let me say that again. It means you're willing to lose anything that gets in the way of gaining Christ. Even your physical life, even your family members, even your children, even your own uh, possessions. In fact, in Luke 14... I told you Jesus taught this sermon a lot here's what he teaches in verse 25 of Luke 14 he says now the crowd now great crowds accompanied him now if this was modern day church building strategy we would say awesome let's get more but what Jesus does is he turns around and he said to them if anyone comes to me he must hate his own father and his own mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and, yes, even his own life. If he does not, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but was not able to finish. Or what king going out to war to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, the other is, are, and if not, while the other is Yet a great way off, he'll send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, you cannot be my disciple. Crowds are behind him. He says, have you counted the cost? Have you actually calculated? I can almost imagine him seeing giggling and laughing and listening to worldly talk, worldly ambition, and him thinking, they don't know where I'm going. And I don't know that they've counted the cost. And it means if your father or mother or wife or son or daughter gets between you and Jesus, you take Jesus. Those are the ones who can follow Christ. And he said, yes, even hate his own life. Do a Google search on how many books on self-esteem there are out there. The, G- the Bible talks about self-hatred, self-despising. This is the offensive part of the gospel. This is the part that makes people angry, people who like to think that there's something worthy in and of themselves. Yes, there's value given to us because we're created in the image of God. Yes, there's common grace in us, but none of those go to our account that we're going to be able to put forth before God. Paul said this in Galatians 6.12 about those religious people that were... About doing good works, those who believe that circumcision is what you needed for salvation, he said, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So, they want a good showing in the flesh and they don't want persecution. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, once I ran into Christ, I knew there was nothing in me that I could put before God and say, this is good. My only boast is in the cross of Christ. And so the world that used to captivate me, I'm crucified to it. I'm dead to it. I'm not believing anymore that life and happiness can be found apart from Christ. to take up your cross daily and die to your own selfishness. What does it mean to save your life and then lose it? Look at what he says. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you try to save your house as the forest fire is coming, you will lose your life. It's not going to last anyway. If you try to save your life in the temporary, if you want to remain king of your life, if you view your relationship with Christ like this, I invited Jesus into my life. Listen, that's not how discipleship works. You don't invite Jesus into your life. He invites you into his life to follow Him, to give up the reins and say, you have my life. You're my only hope. So if you or I desire to save our own selfish lives, And keep hold of it. We might want to add Jesus to it, but Jesus says, those people aren't my disciples. They cannot follow me. They have not counted the cost. They do not realize, they let go of grip on their own life and realize that there was nothing good there to hold on to anyway. So lose your life. Those who try to save their life in the temporary will lose it eternally forever in hell. In 1 John 2.15, John says it this way, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father but from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you really want to build your life on a world that's passing away? When God's Word and God's promises stand forever? That does not mean you can't enjoy life down here on this earth. But it does mean that you don't think ultimate hope or happiness or peace is found down here apart from Christ. This world points to the glory of God. And we can enjoy things in creation, when we recognize the Creator and that all these things are pointing to Him. But what's the sin of Romans 1 through 3? People begin to worship the creature rather than the Creator. In 2 Timothy 3, here's just listen how contrary this is to what we're used to. Paul tells. This young pastor, Timothy, says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. People will think that there's a whole bunch of inherent goodness in themselves. Their whole life will be lived for the glory of themselves. They'll be lovers of money, they'll be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Your problem isn't that you want too much pleasure, it's that you want it outside of God. That's what sin is. God wants us to have ultimate pleasure, but you can't have pleasure apart from seeking it in God. So it's a sobering question, or it's a sta- it's a sobering statement. What does it mean to save your life and lose your soul, and then? Lose it for eternity. That's something we need to calculate. What does it mean to lose your life, then save it? Question five. It means to lose all hope in and of yourself and of the world. In 1 Timothy one fifteen, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am The foremost, Paul has lost his life in the sense of he's counted it. He actually uses like a swear word. It's the SH word in our language. He says, my whole life, here's what I used to live for. I count it rubbish. It gets translated into our text. Rubbish, excrement. Paul says, I'm the foremost of sinners. He sees himself clearly. But here's the good news. This is a trustworthy statement. Jesus came to save who? Sinners. He says, well, I'm the foremost. I qualify. I can have life. I can lose hope in and of myself to not even think there's anything here valuable apart from the grace of God. Do not get self-pity mixed up with this concept of losing your life. There's a way to say, yeah, I'm no good, I'm rotten, I'm sinful, I never do anything good. And really, what is this? This is all about self. Has, there's no faith in it. What Paul's talking or what uh, uh, Luke is talking about when he quotes Jesus here, or I should say, what Jesus is saying, is that only those who see themselves for who they really are will save their life. So this is the offensive part of the gospel. We come to a world that inherently thinks of themselves as good. And yet the only way they can receive Jesus is if they realize they're not. Otherwise, it's going to be some false form of repentance. You can't repent over what you're not sorry for, for what you're broken over. This is why Christians have been persecuted all throughout the centuries, is because our message is contrary to what, by our flesh, humans want to hear. We want to claim some boasting, some goodness. We might be willing to admit, yeah, I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not that person. And yet the Gospel comes in and challenges even that. Unless you lose all hope to where you're ready to take up your cross and say, I'm done with that. That can do me no good. Then a person cannot be saved. And this is the way it's always been. When Isaiah saw God, what did he say? Woe! I, woe is me! Damn me! For I am a man of unclean lips. When he realizes his sin, he's in a position where God can now use him. I want to read a couple paragraphs that uh, John MacArthur writes because this was helpful in understanding repentance. The only way into the kingdom of God is to repent and believe. What does it mean to repent? Here's what MacArthur writes. People who enter God's kingdom are literally overwhelmed with hatred for what they are. I hate what I am. I hate what I am. I hate what I am because all that I am is sin. Now this produces repentance this produces a turning a longing to be delivered and rescued from what you are to be made into what you are not but what you long to be something that is good something that is worthwhile that does have value that is righteous and useful it's back in Luke 5:32 he says jesus said i've come i've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. I can't do anything for people who think they're already righteous. I can't do anything for people who are impressed with themselves or impressed with their religion or impressed with their morality or impressed with their money or impressed with their education or their achievement. I can't do anything for those people jesus is saying i didn't come for them they don't hear my message in luke thirteen three, jesus tells us how important repentance is in verse 3 i tell you no unless you repent you all will likewise perish and he's talking about death and hell verse 5 repeats it i tell you no unless you repent you will likewise perish Twice he tells us we're going to die and go to hell if you don't repent. And the only people who repent are those who are sinners and who are self-aware of their righteousness. That is why the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin. Repentance is the product of self-hate. It's the product of that beatitude attitude. People repent when they look at themselves and they're ashamed of what they see, when they look at themselves and they're brokenhearted over what they see, this is a redirection of their whole self-assessment and says, I'm nothing, I'm less than nothing, I'm sinful, I'm wretched, and I'm wicked to the core. Now get this part. The call to repentance is not a command to sort of make your life right before you come to Christ. It's a total reversal of the way you view yourself and it encompasses every part of your being. It's not a turning just from the list of bad things to do the list of God's things. It's a turning on your opinion of yourself so that you look to the only one that can provide what you and I lack, which is righteousness. When all of our righteous deeds are filthy rags, that means we don't get to put any good thing on the table that God may justify us. The only one who repents is the one who's made the self-assessment and said, that person needs to die. The way Paul told the Galatians, he said, when you've trusted Christ, you nailed yourself to the cross. When I trusted Christ, I took Sam Ellison, nailed him to the cross and said, die. And every day I woke up, rather than feeding that old self and feeling sorry for that old self, crucifying it, crucifying it to the point one day Jesus will come back and it'll be dead. No more selfishness, no more sin. To lose your life, those who lose it will save it. What an amazing paradox, huh? You die, and then you get eternal life. Jesus said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and then I'm going to be killed, but then I'm going to be raised. And he says, it's the same for you. You're going to suffer You're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to deny to yourself. You're going to have to be willing to take the rejection and suffering from the world. But as sure as I'm raised from the dead, you yourself will be raised from the dead. Um, Let's see how we're doing here. Not good. All right. What does it mean to calculate the transaction of the world for your life? What an amazing illustration, he says. He says. In the ultimate hyperbole, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, just imagine for a minute that you gain the entire world. You just have to forfeit one thing, yourself. He says, "What is a profit of man? Someone might say, the whole world? That's a lot of profit. But Jesus uses the illustration and says, no, that's a bad transaction. People even in this room, will give up Christ for less than the whole world. There's sin. There's your own kingdom, rebellion. You just don't want to let go of it. Some people will go to hell for less than the whole world. They may keep their boyfriend or their girlfriend. They may keep their job and their selfishness. But it's a poor, insane thing to do. What does it mean to be ashamed of Jesus? It means that you value the approval of others more than Jesus. That's what it means. To be ashamed of Jesus before men means you would rather be accepted by men than to be accepted by Christ. It's the ultimate spitting in His face saying what they give me, the nice things they say to me, the nice acceptance they give me is a greater reward than your approval. That's insane too. Finally, what does it mean to have Him be ashamed of you in the presence of God's glory? You see, when Jesus comes back, People are going to see the light of His majesty. They're going to know how sinful they are. They're going to cry for rocks and mountains to crush them as they see God come in all of His glory. And if you don't have Christ, that light will expose your nakedness and sin, and He'll be ashamed of it. But the invitation is this. Take up your cross. Follow me. I'll give you new life. Here's how Peter says it. Peter says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter suffered. History tells us he got crucified upside down. But he got crucified upside down entrusting his soul to a faithful creator while doing good wall-loving his enemies. He believed his rabbi and his teacher. And he already knew how the course of life goes. Suffer, be killed, be, re- be rejected, be killed, be raised. And it's the same for you and I. I hope nobody leaves here today stiff-arming the God who's proven his love for you in Christ. In love, God sent his son for you to be the mediator, to give you what you don't have, righteousness. Anyone who will cling to him by faith and say, yep, I've lost hope that I have any goodness in and of myself. He's my only hope. The person who trusts in him and clings to him the great exchange happens. Your sin goes to Jesus. He pays for your sin under the wrath of God. And His righteous life, His 33 years of a perfect life, is wrapped around you and given to you as a gift. This is a faithful, trustworthy statement. Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, to save sinners. Father, It is humbling as we look at what the Bible says about self-righteousness, and yet we know it's true. Lord, I pray that there would be no one here trying to hold onto their life in one hand and invite Jesus into it with the other. Lord, I pray that all of us would be willing to start this war of denying ourselves and finding our hope in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.